If you will, turn to Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, and we'll read through verse 21. Hear now God's word. Please rise. Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. We've been in this series for quite a while, and I'll remind you, uh, we began in the 24th chapter of Luke with the resurrection of Jesus, which then, of course, moved into the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. And uh, not necessarily an artful title, but a meaningful one, which is has been the name of this series, Jesus After the Resurrection. We know the story of Jesus before the resurrection and up to the cross, But the story of Acts is the story of Jesus after the resurrection. In fact, that story continues today among us. Uh, Because the church is the body of Christ, which is now acting under his headship to reach the uttermost parts of the earth. That activity was going on this week. I trust that it was going on in this congregation and in this community and in churches all across the world as God's people in the name of Jesus, prayed and served and loved and healed and did all kinds of good works in the name of Jesus Christ to represent Him throughout the earth. Jesus had told His disciples in John chapter 4, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in Me, the works that I do, He will do also. And greater works than these He will do. Why? He says, because I go to my Father. So from heaven, from the right hand of the Father, now he works through his people and is reaching not just in Palestine, not just in some regional area, but in fact to the uttermost parts of the earth. The church is still his body under his headship, and the leaven of his kingdom is has indeed spread to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus is still very active in this world, conquering all his and our enemies with the good news of the gospel. Or as the book of Hebrews reveals in Hebrews 10, 12 through 13, but this man, that is Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God and from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We live in a culture that increasingly has no knowledge of the gospel, or a misunderstanding of the gospel. 
And so how do we reach such people? Where is the point of contact? The Apostle Paul knows the answer to those questions, and we can learn a great deal from him in this part of Acts chapter 17 as it gives some great lessons on both evangelism and apologetics, which is simply defending the faith. One, evangelism is the presentation of the gospel. Apologetics is the defense of the gospel, answering questions and objections. So we're going to slow down our pace a bit in the book of Acts for a few weeks, and we're going to camp out in this passage. Today's sermon will be an introduction wherein I hope to set the table a bit so that we can extract some of the lessons and applications to our own situation today. Again, I want to acknowledge my gratitude for the commentary work of Derek Thomas, Greg Bonson, and especially John Stott. I look back and I've preached on this text a number of times in my 38 years, and uh, I think I've used um, several of those resources from 25, 30 years ago. And I'm still using them. I'm thankful that for that. These men have instructed me. They've enabled me to think about these passages and hopefully present this series of messages. So let me start with a quote from Derek Thomas, which I think helps us set the back, uh, step, set the back, excuse me, step back and see a pattern of things that have been happening in the book of Acts. So he says, it looks as though Paul's visit to Athens was unplanned. From a human point of view, the visit to Macedonia had gone badly. The Thessalonians had summarized it well in Acts 17.6. These men who turned, who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The apostles had been a nuisance wherever they had gone. Indeed, taking a trip with Paul would require nerve and stamina. In Philippi, he had been imprisoned in Thessalonica. His preaching had caused a riot in Berea. He was forced out of town. And before that, he was expelled from Pisidian Antioch, threatened with stoning at Iconium, and actually stoned and left for dead in Lystra. When Thessalonian Jews arrived in Berea to stir up the crowds, Paul's companions decided it was time that Paul take a cruise. They took him to the coast, put him on a ship that took him along the Greek coastline for over 250 miles to the great city of Athens. Quite a story so far. We ended our story last Sunday with Acts 17.15, which says, So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So they just dropped Paul off by himself in this great city of Athens. And he said, be sure and send uh, Timothy and Silas here as soon as possible. So in God's providence and because of difficulties, because of difficulties, Paul finds himself alone in this famous and this impressive city. Famous for its intellectual history, Athens was at its pinnacle in the classical era of the 5th century B.C. Was That's when it was at its height. Uh, then it was conquered by Sparta, and then in the 3rd century B.C. it was conquered again by Macedonia, and then in the following century the Romans were in charge, and that's still the case when Paul arrives. 
After being incorporated into Rome, it maintained its intellectual independence and became a free city. This is where, roughly 400 years earlier, Socrates taught his most famous pupil, Aristotle, and also where he died at the hands of Athenian democracy. Athens was famous for its politics, its culture, religion, and philosophy, and it was renowned for its four major schools. The Academy, founded by Plato, the Lyceum, founded by Aristotle, the Garden, founded by Epicurus, and the Painted Porch, founded by Zeno. We would uh, He's famous for Stoicism. Its architecture was glorious, and several of its ancient buildings are still visible today, including the Parthenon. And just northwest of the Parthenon, the remains of the Areopagus can be seen, and that's where Paul is going to wind up in this chapter speaking to a crowd. This is, again, the scene of the, one of the apostles' most famous speeches, uh, which, he will, which we're going to be considering in the weeks ahead. The name Areopagus literally means Hill of Ares or Mars Hill, Mars being the Roman equivalent of the Greek Ares, the god of war. So in the first century, Athenian intellectual life had really come to be characterized by turmoil and uncertainty. It really does remind me of our own age. Anything and everything. Skepticism had made heavy inroads. Men were searching all over the place for the truth and for security. And on the other hand, after 400 years of philosophic disputing and inadequacies, many Athenians were simply bored and looking for something new. The Greek Cleon once said of the Athenians, quote, you are the best people for being deceived by something new which is said. And Luke says in verse 21, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. They had uh, what, what I've heard the term used frequently. He has an Athenian spirit. He wants something new. I always want, I want you to show me something new. I want something I've never heard of before. That's exciting. I don't, all that other stuff's boring. So, and I know some Christians who have the Athenian spirit. So a little bit on Paul's background. Paul was a citizen of Tarsus, the leading intellectual city of Cilicia, noted for its schools devoted to rhetoric and philosophy. Some of his philosophers gained significant reputations, especially the Stoic leader Zeno of Tarsus. And this city, no doubt, had exercised enormous academic influence on the Apostle Paul himself. Paul studied in his earlier years under Gamaliel in Jerusalem, where he apparently excelled as a student. His courses would have included critical studies in Greek culture and philosophy. So as he's entering into Athens, he's not ignorant. He has some knowledge of this history this culture. Obviously, Paul was not naive then when it came to the knowledge of these things. He'd been exposed, if you will. And now he arrives in Athens for the first time where he awaits the arrival of his companions, Silas and Timothy. Imagine just being dropped off in New York City by yourself. 
never been there before. Where do you start? So he found himself alone in this cultural capital of the world. And so we want to see, as we're going to see in the next few weeks, we want to see what Paul Paul's reaction was. What should be the reaction of any Christian when found in a place that is dominated by non-Christian ideology, religion, and culture? A place which is aesthetically magnificent and culturally sophisticated. A place which is morally and spiritually decadent, deceived, and dead. In other words... It was like arriving at a modern university. How do you react when you're alone among men and women who don't think like you do? We might be tempted to compromise or to justify the situation, or perhaps we simply try to endure it and to remain obscure. In this text, we're going to observe, and this is what we'll be looking at in the next few weeks, four parts to Paul's reaction. We want to see this morning what he saw. What did he see? And then we will look at what he felt and what he did and what he said. And so today, we're going to consider what he saw. Verse 16, now while Paul waited for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Here was the famed city, which he'd heard about all of his life, a city that has been described as one vast compilation of architecture and sculpture dedicated to the national glory and to the worship of the gods. As he enters the Agora, that's the marketplace, uh, think of an open mall kind of place where all the people are marketing their goods, large, uh, he would have viewed the many porticos fa- uh, painted by some famous artists. It was a beautiful place. And he quite likely overheard various people, perhaps philosophers, engaged in debate. And so again, this is a very impressive place, yet... And according to Luke, none of those things are the things that struck him. No doubt he saw a certain beauty in them. But I'll tell you what he saw was something he saw behind that. He saw through that. He wasn't taken captive by this impressive show of human achievement. It was not the beauty or the majesty of Athens It was the idolatry of Athens that captured his attention. The word used to describe the situation is used only here in the New Testament, and it's usually translated full of idols. We might just say it was smothered with idols. Everywhere you look, you couldn't look any direction without seeing an idol. It's swamped with these Xenophon referred to Athens as one great altar, one great sacrifice. The Roman satirist Petronius once said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. The city simply teemed with idols, he said. And according to one historian, Athens had more idols than all the remainder of Greece combined. 
So it's important for us to get this image. Paul was like now the little boy in the Hans Christian Andersen story, The Emperor's New Clothes. He saw that the city, in all of its glory, alleged glory, was really naked. 1 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Certainly Paul wasn't blinded to the beauty of the city. As we've said, these idols were made not only of stone and brass, but of silver and gold and ivory and marble. We have them in our museums now. By the way, I, I was once accused at my house. One time the Robertsons were at our house for dinner, and Jack Davis excused himself uh, to take care of business, and he went in my little restroom there. And when he came out, he went over to his dad and whispered into his ear, and, and Jason started laughing a bit. And I said, What's, what did he say? He said, Pastor Booth has an idol in his bathroom. <laughs> So, that concerned him, (laughs) as it should. So, the Athenian idols, of course, have been masterfully crafted by the finest sculptors. But beauty, this kind of beauty, did not impress Paul because it did not honor God. No appreciation of art for art's sake. Art, including music, listen carefully, no matter how technically beautiful, is always an expression of something, of some ideas, of beliefs. Art is never abstract, just as beauty is not abstract, It always communicates ideas and beliefs. Beauty is a quality in something, and art is a means of presenting that beauty. And if that something is falsehood, idolatry, superstition, or sensuality, and then I present that falsehood, superstition, and so forth, with some kind of beauty or skill then it really becomes a prostitution of both. This is in large part what's at issue often concerning the National Endowment for the Arts. We think we call something art. It's art. Oh, it's art. Must be okay then. We can do what we want to do. We can put a crucifix in a jar of urine and call it art. Because I was expressing myself. And therefore, it's, it's beautiful. No, it's not. It's idolatrous. What is idolatry? Simple definition, idolatry is any substitution of what is created for the Creator. Paul will write at some length in Romans chapter 1 on this, beginning in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
They're holding down this truth about the God of glory. The, the heavens reveal His glory. God is going to say here, because what may be known about God is manifest in them. That is, all men. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And the word there is where we get our word apologetics. They are without a defense. No excuses. Overwhelming evidence. He goes on to say, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. Think of Athens here. They became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Idols. People may worship statues or other images, but let's remember the Bible teaches us that they may also worship nature or money or mankind or power or history or social and political systems instead of the God who created them. The Bible teaches that the relationship need not be cultic. That is, it doesn't need to be formal. There doesn't need to be a formal ceremonial worship service for worship to take place. It has a broad definition of idolatry. Ephesians 5.5, No covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Colossians 3.5, covetousness, which is idolatry. A man may place anyone or anything at the top of his pyramid of values, and that is ultimately what he serves and worships. That service ultimately and profoundly affects the way he lives. An idolatrous society is headed for destruction. The Bible doesn't speak of societies as being born or coming of age or dying. The biblical explanation of the end of societies uses the concept, the unpopular concept of judgment. It depicts societies as either having submitted themselves to God or else as having rebelled against Him For example, Israel rebelled against God and turned to idols, and this idolatry brought the nation to an end. Hosea 8.4 says, With their silver and their gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Our own culture is full of idols. As Western society has turned from its Christian roots, it has turned to other things, This has commonly been called secularization, but this word only connotes the turning away from the worship of the true God, and it fails to recognize the fact that something else is being worshipped in its place, in his place. All principles or things that substitute for God exemplify the biblical concept of idols. So our society 
is much like that of Athens in Paul's day. Not only full of idols, but full of confusion and boredom and despair. Herbert Schlossberg, in his outstanding book titled Idols for Destruction, cited one British journalist as saying this, I have to report the affairs of a world which has lost its faith, which is like a fish out of water or a drowning man desperately thrashing around for a lack of oxygen. Since the time of Christ, there has been no period in which there has been the same feeling of spiritual impoverishment. William Foxwell Albright, the distinguished archaeologist, said that American society is at an impasse similar to that of the Hellenistic world at the time of Christ. What do you see? When you look around the places where you find yourself, Paul found himself in Athens alone, and he went out for a walk. So when you do that, are you aware of whether God is being honored or not? Where do you hang out? Is God being honored there? Are you taken in by the culture? Are you awed by it? Or do you perceive the meaning and the intent of that culture? You have to have spiritual eyes to perceive such things. 1 Corinthians 2, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised, but he who is spiritual appraises all things. That's what Paul is doing in Athens, and yet he himself is appraised by no man. If you don't perceive the problem, then you certainly will not be moved to do anything about the problem. We are constantly tempted and deceived into an unchristian way of thinking. We might seek to look the other way, or to justify the situation, or worse, to compromise with an idolatrous culture. We grow accustomed and callous to the unbelief that is around us. But we are called to be a separate people, to be a holy people. Holy. Different. Peculiar. Paul's few days alone in Athens, in some ways, were a vacation from his work as a missionary. He'd been run out of town. They drop him off. I'm sure he was told, get some rest. Take a break. You're working too hard. He could have justified taking that break and simply enjoyed himself. And no doubt there were some aspects of his, I'm sure he was excited to see Athens, this place he'd always heard about. But for the Christian, there is no vacation from service to God. Christians are called to be holy all the time. And as a result, we are to constantly view the, view the world and the culture through God's standards. The world may view things as being, uh, they they may view you as being a killjoy, but the Christian's joy comes from pleasing God, a joy that the world cannot know apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Just makes me think about that great hymn. And I remember seeing some of our national leaders sing joy to the world. 
the Lord has come. There is no joy in a fallen world without the gospel. Not really. They're temporary. Surface joys. But not the kind of joy the Bible talks about that's full of glory. You see, this culture is like the Titanic. Everyone is excited at how glorious it all is. Great wealth, uh, great technology, great activity, great fun, great arrogance. The Bible tells us that the party is going to be over soon. The Athenian party was over soon. And then only those who are in the lifeboat will know any joy. Because that previous excitement will turn to sorrow very quickly. Paul recognized, that is, he saw, and we must see, all was not well in Athens. And all is not well with our culture. As beautiful as it all may seem on the surface, at the heart, it's very ugly. And all of its idols are destined for destruction. The only refuge for this sinking ship is Jesus Christ. That unattractive, obscure carpenter's son. He was the only light for the darkness of Athens. He is the only light for our dark culture. And He is the only light for anyone's darkened understanding. Paul, closed, uh, Paul said in Ephesians 4, 17-18, This I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that you... No longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. And so I conclude today, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us take a fresh look at the world. May we see our culture the way Paul saw Athens, a city full of idols. He saw them as people without Christ headed toward judgment and condemnation. And as we will see next time, this stirred and moved him emotionally, powerfully, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to see our own cultural idols the way the apostles saw them in Athens, not in fear and loathing, but rather in pity for those who worship them. May we, like him, be eager to proclaim the gospel to those who serve an unknown God. Help us to remember that your word is and was and always will be powerful to overcome all the imaginations of men. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we can see and address the idols of others, we must first see and address our own idols. Remember, idolatry is any substitution of what is created for the Creator.
It's possible for us to forget to put the Lord first, to lose our first love, and to allow false gods to take over. It could be money or careers or entertainment or sports or your children or your friends or a thousand other things. Jeremiah 2, verses 9 through 13, God says, Therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says Jehovah. And against your children's children, I will bring charges. Boy, that's a pretty awesome statement. For pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and see, see, send to Kadar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horrified, horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says Jehovah. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is a powerful warning from God that if we have substituted something else for Him, things are not going to go well in the end. So let us now come to this table to remember and to renew our covenant with Him. Amen. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Amen.